Uh, good morning again. Good morning again. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I don't think I introduced myself. So I'm Jack, in case I don't know you, and I'm uh, Bethany Northeast's lead pastor. And uh, we're in the second week of a series we're in throughout Lent. In the, the, the I Am Statements of Jesus, it's, the series is called I Am Enough. And the reason for that is we're looking at these statements or declarations Jesus makes as kind of central statements of identity that Jesus makes about himself, about God the Father, and then kind of how the implication of those statements on our lives, kind of how what Jesus says about himself. Last week, he looked at, I am the bread. Uh, this week, I'm the vine. Next week, another one. And what the implications of those statements are for us as followers of Christ or people who are seeking to follow him faithfully. So before we dive into it, it's in John 15, if you're going to turn there. Let me go ahead and take a moment to pray over this time of study. Let's pray. God, thanks for the the opportunity we have to open your word together in community. Um, so, God, we, we pray that uh, your word would be open to our hearts, um, not just to the page on the book, but uh, you would open us to new sources of revelation as a community, as individuals, uh, that you'd teach us how to walk faithfully with you, that you'd show us even now, God, who we are truly, who you are, and then um, shape us in response to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so, on the vine, you're the branches. You can see there's a tree maybe blocking your view on stage. And you might be wondering, why is there a tree there? Does anybody know what kind of tree that is? Did, were you here early? Or? Yes, you were. Duh. Yeah, I told you that already. You're not allowed to answer. You can't answer the test questions if I already gave you the answer. Cheater. Okay, so it is a dogwood. So, let me tell you why that dogwood's on the stage. Uh, some of you know... Elizabeth and I bought a house. It's almost been almost a year in June, and we, we live um, just to the west of here in Pinehurst. And that was a process of several years of prayer by many of you. Uh, it was, long story short, very miraculous uh, purchase. We don't, <laughs> the Seattle housing market, I mean, there's a few realtors in our congregation. It's crazy, to say the least. And so that we were able to even do that was amazing to us. And the way we did it, we bought it off market. So we bought it privately uh, from the owner of the house. Her name's Lillian, or was Lillian. She was the only ever owner of this house. Lived there 65 years. Bought it in, or built it in 1952. Um, it was a really good, solid house, like those houses all built right after World War II. Uh, and she, it was lived in well, loved well, lo but lots of work needs to be done on the house. <laughs> and specifically in the yard. Now, uh, Lillian is this, was, is, she's still alive, but lives down in Salem, Oregon now. This constant gardener, if you look at Google Earth images of our house, it's 11539 12th Avenue Northeast, come by for a visit, you'll see Lillian out front of the house, this little, little silverhead lady, silver lady gardening. Like, as the Google car drove by, there she was, gardening. Like, they fuzzed her face and everything, but she's out there, and I think she was constantly out there is what we heard from her daughter who we bought the house with or through. Um, and she's just this constant gardener, always tending her garden. Uh, the backyard of the house, if you know some of my previous stories when we moved in, was a forest, a forest of uh, like 15 foot tall rhododendrons. Um, just crazy. And we heard from the Van Osses who are neighbors, Tim and Ashley, that it was like this, um, what do you call an aviary with all the birds? Like there was constantly birds there. Just all the time they had bird feeders and it was crazy. So we took out, and some of you, sorry Adam, we took out most of those rhododendrons with an, a chainsaw and an axe and ripped them out. So the backyard now is open. 
I, sorry about that. Doing the opposite of your work. I know, Nature Conservancy. Love you guys. Um, Torla's out. We discovered in this forest some fruit trees that were all very emaciated. Like, uh, we're not able to get enough sunlight and water because these rhododendrons had overgrown the property. So we have this beautiful apple tree. We have several pear trees. We have this hybrid of a peach and a apricot tree that's, I don't think, ever grown a piece of fruit, which I'm looking forward to maybe tasting that fruit. That's some of my favorite fruit in the world. The front yard of this house is just filled, if you look at those pictures, filled with dahlias and roses. Dahlias are my favorite flower. I at one point thought we'd name our daughter Dahlia. Um, we're not enough of a hippie family to do that. But they're beautiful flowers. We could, we could literally have one of those stands on the front of our house and sell dahlias all summer. So 11539 12th Avenue Northeast. I'll have a coin box out there. No, I'm kidding. And then Elizabeth recently discovered um, that there's over 40 rose bushes in this very small front yard. Very small. 46 to be exact. We're going to actually have a sale, and this is not a sales pitch, by the way, of uh, rose bushes. So if you want a rose bush, come talk to us. We have quite a few, and we're going to, this one corner in particular, dig out a few. There's a bunch. I mean, you can't even walk um, and put, put this tree in there. And the reason for a dogwood, the reason I want to put this dogwood in is because we planted a dogwood, um, Elizabeth and I did, on our wedding day. So we got married at her parents' house in Anacortes 15 years ago in August, and we got married under this old oak tree. Like I said, we're not hippies, but you might think we are. And instead of doing a unity candle, we planted a tree. and planted a dogwood tree. And it's been fun to watch that dogwood grow up over the years. And there was a couple years where we thought it was not going to survive. And it's just beautiful. It's slowly growing up. And um, some of you are hipsters. You have no idea what I'm talking about. When I say hippies, do you? You have no, no clue, do you? So this is the theme. That, and the reason we did this tree is this is like the theme that's been running through our lives. In fact, if you look at our wedding bands, on our wedding bands, we have the same wedding bands. There's the vine and the branches. And we chose that image uh, because that was really the theme of kind of our engagement. It has been the theme of our, our marriage, this idea of, as Paul says in Ephesians, two becoming one. But we really read that as not one flesh, but kind of one vine being grafted into, uh, our families being grafted into uh, one family, becoming one family. Our, our stories of faith being grafted into one journey. One, one faith journey, so to speak. Um, all that to say, okay, our homeowner journey, our lives together, our marriage, our, we've been deeply interested in and invested in and committed to growth as a family, as a couple. Continuous, organic growth. Um, it's, just, it's just who we are as people. We love, we love to garden. We love the woods. We love the idea of growth. And I'll just say, if you're following Jesus today or you're, you're interested in following Jesus, it's true for you too. That Jesus is, the life Jesus wants to impart to you is a life that's constantly growing and organically growing. In other words, life in Christ is never merely about a moment in time. Just the same as like our wedding was not just about that day. Or our marriage was not just about that wedding day. Um, getting the keys to our house was not just the end of the story. There's a lot of work to do there. Your, your story of faith, whether you prayed a prayer as a child or you had a conversion when you were in high school, or you just recently came back to church because you, you kind of had a moment of clarity around January 1st or whatever. Um, those are all good moments, but those are not the most important thing to Jesus. His import, the most important thing to Jesus, uh, what we read here in John 15, is continuing to walk into his story 
uh, growing up in Christ, as Paul says in one of his letters. Or as Beaver says in the Chronicles of Narnia, constantly being invited further up and further in to the story of God. That's what Jesus wants for us, continuous, organic growth. That's what John 15 is all about, intimate and sustained relationship with God. Um, and so this morning, what I want to do with you is kind of look at what that means through the lens of this chapter we read. Uh, to, how do we experience deep, continuous, sustained, lifelong growth with Christ? Um, because Christianity is really all about growth. You've never quite arrived. You've never arrived. You're never, like, woke as a Christian, if that's something you could say. We are always growing. So how do you grow? Why do you grow? Those are the questions I want to look at with you. In fact, those are, the, those are exactly the two questions. So first, why do, why do we grow as followers of Christ? And the second question I want to look at is how we grow as followers of Christ. Okay? We'll just do that, and then we'll come to response. So the first question I want to look at is um, why we grow as followers of Christ, okay? And you can have it open to John 15, your Bible if you have it, or on your, in your phone or in your lap, whatever that works for you. Uh, the passage that we read tells us that the reason we grow as followers of Christ, um, as Christians, is because of our intimacy in relationship with Jesus, okay? So look at the image. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now, for some of you, that doesn't really evoke a lot of like, intimacy in relationship, but the image that Jesus is really intending to awaken us to is this idea that we are in incredibly intimate relationship with God, okay? Uh, a branch, in other words, is only truly joined to uh, a tree, a, a trunk, if you will, or if it's a vine, like a grapevine. Uh, it's only getting the juices and the chemicals and the moisture from that trunk because of its connection. In other words, the, the branch is not touching the soil where the chemicals and the water and the nutrients reside. The trunk is by, by, uh, by, the tr- by the roots, but not the branch. And so Jesus says that, the, that unless the branch is truly joined to the trunk or the vine, then the life of that tree or that, that trunk cannot come into the branch. has to be connected, has to be organically connected, can't be superficially connected. Um, we actually, on one of our trees, have this, I don't know what they were thinking, but they, they tried to graft a, a branch onto this uh, one of these pear trees I was talking about, and they just taped it, I don't know, years ago, like with electrical tape, taped this branch on. I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, it's just there. I'm like, you kind of have to cut it open, and then I, th- I don't even know how it does that, but you can't just tape it on and hope that it grows. There's just like this dead piece of wood there. I was like, nice try. <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, so the Christianity is about continuous, organic growth. Uh, and, and this intimacy and this union with God are, are the, the essence of our relationship with Jesus, vine and branch, stem and, stem and trunk. And, and so we talk about this at Bethany a lot. If you've been around Bethany for any length of time, we're, all, we're always talking about union with Christ, aren't we? And I, I don't know, I, I, I don't think you can really talk about it enough, so I'm going to talk about it a little more this morning, uh, because it's such an, a tremendously important and foundational concept to our faith. Uh, in other words, Jesus says here with this illustration, vine and branches, uh, that his relationship to you or to me, any one of us, is more intimate than any kind of relationship you can imagine in your life. It's more intimate, think of the relationships you have, than your employee to an employer, or to a teacher to a student, or, or a parent to a child. Even, I would say, a, a husband to a wife, though that's nearly getting to it at a level. So in all those relationships, most of the relationships in our lives, most of them, you have influence. In some cases, you have incredible influence, okay? So 
You see this if you're a manager or an employer and you have employees. You have incredible influence in their lives. The words you use have incredible influence to build people up or to tear them down. And some of you have seen this in your workplace. Uh, you see this with teacher and students. We live across from an elementary school, and, and every day in the classroom you see these kids, you know, walking out, uh, kind of hanging their head, and you kind of wonder, what did they hear in class that day? Do this, get that. Don't do this, lose that, you know? Uh, you see this in parent-child relationships. I'm just going to be vulnerable with you. Monday evening, I blew it, completely blew it in front of my daughter. Some of you, this is not going to be surprising to you, but she was, she's 12, so she was like pushing all my buttons, so some of you know what 12-year-olds can do. And to make a long story short, I dropped the F-bomb in front of her. <laughs> Praise Jesus, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I've never done that in front of Marin, never in 12 years. Um, I used to swear quite a bit, a few of you that have known me for a while. Um, and my wife, Elizabeth, looked at me with this mixture of kind of horror and amazement, like, rough day, huh? <laughs> and Mara's just like laughing. She's like this, just because she'd heard the word a few times. I think it she goes to a public school, and so she couldn't believe I said that. And I was really in shock. I was like, "Oh no, what did I just do?" Because I know from my personal experience, I like I said, I used to swear quite a bit. The amazing influence your family can, your parents can have on you. My my the words in my family growing up, uh, language was just this kind of constant. We just constantly were swearing at each other. It was like the way, the environment I just grew up in. Constant conflict between my, me and my parents, my mom and dad. There's this verbal warfare that we were engaged in all the time. And that affected me profoundly, like really profoundly. It took a long time to unwind that. I made this commitment, <laughs> which I just broke on Monday, that uh, I wasn't going to um, raise our children. We weren't going to raise our children in that kind of culture. And I'm, we're not, this is not licensed to swear, so then I can just give up, you know, I'm just going to swear all the time. But in this illustration from John 15, what Jesus says is he's not just a cosmic influencer. He's not just there in our lives to exercise authority over us. He's not about behavior modification. He's not about modeling good moral conduct and teaching you how to watch your language. He's not, that's not what Jesus, he's not like me to my daughter, hoping that she turns out better than maybe I did in some ways. Those are all good things. Like I said, don't go out and swear in front of your 12-year-olds. Big mistake. But the vine and the branches mean something more than that. I think what Jesus is saying is I don't just influence your nature. I enter your nature, okay? I, I'm not about modifying your behavior. I'm about enter, changing your entire being. I'm not about refining your vocabulary, <laughs> so to speak. I'm here to completely alter your DNA. That's what is happening with vines and branches, if you're truly connected to Jesus. So this is so deep. I mean, if you think about it, so intimate. Uh, there's, really, there's, there's really no relationship like this. So a total transformation of our lives. As C.S. Lewis once said about kind of this idea, he said Christianity is not about making us nicer people. It's about making us into new people. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, um, which is, is what Jesus is trying to drive home to us when he says, remain in me. That's what he means, to stay so connected that our lives are changed, totally changed. Uh, he's, he's inviting us into nothing less than his life entering into our lives, okay? Um, the, the very life of heaven coming into you, if you can imagine this. If you read Revelation 21, the life of heaven, that life, Jesus is saying, is entering into you. That's amazing if you think about it. It's, it's like coursing through your veins right now. If you're connected to Jesus, uh, his joy, his love, his power, 
his spirit is entering into you. It's, it's really in you right now. And it's, it's got the power to change your life, completely change the world around you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. So what could be more revolutionary than that? It's kind of what Jesus is saying. And now I can hear some of, some of you saying, so what? I mean, it sounds good, but what does it really mean? You know, I don't, it, I don't, I love the tree, Jack. It's great stories. Um, how does it apply to my life? And I'm, I'm glad you asked that question um, because if it's true that we're joined with Jesus, that he's alive in each of you in some way, shape, or form, that he's living his life through you, if that's really true and not just some sort of pie in the sky, uh, how does that, it's, it's shape, it has to shape you in some way. It has to shape you. It can't just be an idea in your head that lives there and you get kind of dosed up on it on Sundays, but it has to shape your life. It has to shape how you relate to money and work and intimacy with your spouse and your children. <laughs> uh, you know, so how do you live in response to that idea? So I want to give you two very practical applications before we move to the second question. Okay? The first is this declaration that you are in Christ. Okay? And we say this a lot, but I want to just drill this home to you. When you feel defeated, when you kind of feel ensnared like by a besetting sin, or you, like you're never going to get over this thing, this bad habit, you know, me swearing or whatever, a hang up. When the enemy accuses you of something in your head, you know, your, your heart tells you to retreat in shame. You're never going to be good enough. Um, you, you can tell your heart, I am in Christ. I am one for whom he died. He lives in me. Uh, so my life, as I, we said a couple weeks ago, my life is hidden with God in Christ. You can say that to your heart. You, so you can swear in front of your 12-year-old daughter. You can say, my life is hidden. My life is hidden with God in Christ. This moment does not define me. This, this does not define our relationship. Uh, it may be a blow, but we continue to walk. Uh, you, you experience something at work that really crushes you. Pause. My life is hidden with God in Christ. My work is hidden with God in Christ. Christ is in me. I can take the next step. Hard stuff is happening in our world. Really hard stuff. You read that stuff and you say, my life is hidden with God. Our world is hidden with God in Christ. Christ is in the world. Uh, those moments do not define you or the world we're in. Jesus does. Okay? He lives in the world. So I'm in Christ. That's the first thing. The second is, Christ is in me. It may seem like the, the same thing, but it's the flip side. So Christ is in you. You're not left on your own resources. The vine inside, it connected to the branches, means that his obedience, perfect obedience, his power, his abundant mercy is a resource to you. <laughs> Think about that. Christ in you is greater than anything your heart threatens to tell you. 1 John 4.4. 4. Anything your heart tries to tell you, Christ in you is greater than those things. Uh, Christ in you sets you free from the power of sin and the lies of the enemy. Uh, Christ in you, Christ dwelling in your life, declares over you that you are loved. He wants to say that to you. That's why the vine and the branches is so important. God's desire is to give you the lifeblood of his son Jesus, to, to have that enter into you, um, his essence, his nature, his character, and then become your life. So that's why we grow. When Jesus, when we enter into union with Christ, that's why we grow. You can't do it any other way. You can't do it your life plus Jesus' life. It's his life. Do you hear that? So let's move to the second question then because they're related. And this is how we grow. And he tells us there's two ways we grow. 
okay? So if why we grow is, is union with Christ. He's living his life through us and in us. Um, he tells us two ways that happens. And the first way is that God prunes us. There's the work of the, the gardener, something God does. And the second work is the work we do. We remain in Christ or we remain in him, okay? So there's our work to abide, and there's God's work to, to prune. And I'll look at those two works because they're really important. So let's look at our work first. This is in verse 4a, which is where Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you, okay? He says it again and again in the passage, over and over and over again. It's this refrain in this passage. The work you could say that the branch does, if the branch is doing something, and you're looking at this tree going, what are branches actually doing? And Jesus says, the only thing the branch has to do in this metaphor is remain. So what does it mean to remain? What does it mean for those branches to be remaining in that tree right now? Uh, What does it mean to abide? We think meditation, candles, incense, monks, like all that good stuff, right? And maybe that's part of it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He wasn't trying to elicit a scene of kind of monks in an abbey. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, here's what I think he's talking about. A couple months ago, our Northeast leadership team, we have a local leadership team uh, that meets each month and help guide our community. We were meeting, and part of our devotion time together was to study Psalm 1. And we're studying it. We're seeing kind of what it held for us as a group, but also our church. And so if you know that psalm, it's a really rich psalm, especially the first three verses. Let me read those. This is what the psalmist says. Blesses the man or woman who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates, there's that word, meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. So we read that, and it led to this important but maybe obvious question to you, what do trees do? Like, what are they doing in this metaphor? You have people who are standing, sitting, and walking. We're not supposed to be like them. You know, don't be like, your, like a human being. Be like a tree. What do, what do trees do? And we, we dwelt on that for a few minutes, and, uh, you know, I've never been a tree, so I have no idea. Like, can't ask a tree, what are you doing right now? But the psalmist says you need to be like the tree. And then we prayed around that for a little bit. And then somebody in our group said, well, trees drink. If you want to put it into an action verb, trees, this tree is drinking right now. Uh, and that's what abiding is all about, is just being so rooted, being so in that soil, that you're drinking deeply from that soil. That's where you're drawing your life from. So don't walk. Don't sit, don't stand, and sit. just grow roots that drink deeply. That's what Jesus is trying to get out here. That's what it means to abide, to grow roots that are so deep that you drink from that soil of God's Word. And that's why he says in verse 7, if my words remain or abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. It's all about letting the Word of God come up in and through your life. So what does that mean? for us to have the Word of God abiding in us, for it to be so rooted in God's Word to have, that the waters of God, God's Word just course through your veins. Uh, I'll just say it's one thing to read the Bible for in, information, like just study it. It's one thing to get inspiration from it. And it's a totally different thing, totally different, to, to dwell or abide in God's Word, totally different. I don't know how many of you have ever done that, but 
the Bible talks about this over and over again. So in Colossians 3, this is what Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, if you know his, the call story of his life, in Ezekiel uh, 3, he tells this story where God reaches his hand down from heaven and uh, he says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now you know Ezekiel, he's a little crazy, but he, God hands him this scroll, it's called a scroll of lamentation, and uh, he eats it. He literally eats this, you can picture just taking a Bible right now and eating it. This is what Ezekiel does. And this is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 3.3, 3, it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. If you can imagine eating a book, it doesn't taste like honey. But Ezekiel says, no, it tasted like honey in my mouth. That's what it means to delight and to meditate on God's word, to, to, to roll it around in your, your mouth, your heart so much that it begins to taste like honey. There's, so there's a difference between meditating for information and, and meditating that leads to transformation. Uh, there's a difference between coming to God's word for just a little inspiration on Sunday and then coming to it like, like Ezekiel did for nourishment, that it might infuse, and inge- like ingesting it so it might infuse your whole life. So do you know what it means to ingest the word of God? Like to really sit with it and begin to digest it beyond Sunday morning. It means to let the word of God come inside of you and become part of you. It means to let the word of God become part of your body, your body, your soul, and your spirit. Um, to so slow down with it, as Romans 12 says, to make the Word of God the blueprint for your thought life, uh, to, to let it frame the way you response to thing, your response to things. So example, you're sitting around work tomorrow, lunch table. I don't know where you eat lunch, but you're sitting around with coworkers, and they're all talking about, oh my gosh, I don't know if we're going to have jobs by the summer. I have no idea. Some of you are teachers, and this is a real conversation. Everybody's scared. What do you do? What do you say in your heart? Do you enter their downward spiral of anxiety, or do you turn around and immediately declare uh, Philippians 4, 6, don't fret, don't worry, don't be anxious, pray. You say that to your heart, and then you begin to pray in the moment for your coworkers, for your school, for our, our education system, and that's just one example. Uh, you're, you're on Facebook or Twitter, and your feed is just full of all kinds of political turmoil and confusion and mayhem. That's everybody here. I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on. And what do you do? do you, you, you close your Facebook down. That's what you do. I'm just going to tell you right now. <laughs> I'm not going to give you options. And, and you open to the place where God assures you that the government is on his shoulders. Isaiah 6. That the arc of history is bending toward peace and reconciliation and justice. That God is actually actively at work today establishing those things. That's where you turn. You don't get that from Facebook. Uh, maybe sometimes. Or perhaps you're just caught in a conversation that is, has turned dark. You know, it's mean, it's spiteful, it's hurtful. Uh, so what do you do there? <laughs> you remind yourself of this really cool verse in Ephesians 4. Watch what you say and how you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word is a gift. You, you remind yourself of that. And then you search for a word in that conversation that would be a gift. Whether the hurt and the spite was directed toward you or toward somebody else, you find a way to turn that conversation into a gift. God says we have an an amazing ability to turn each word, each moment into a gift for another. And you do that. So do you see this? This This is the product of meditating on God's word. 
as soon, which is to say, as soon as you begin to think about what God says, really says, then chew on that and roll it around in your heart and let it kind of, the juices of it move through you, however you do that. It completely changes you and your response to things. Uh, so what it means to let the Bible dwell in you richly is just is to let the Bible address you. Let the Bible preach to you, not me on Sunday. Uh, let the Bible come in and be a part of your life each day. And some of you are doing that. You do that through this discipline of reflection, meditation, memorization, study. Some of you are doing it through Lectio Divina. I know a few of you do that on a daily basis. Others are reading the Bible cover to cover this year, and you've gotten to, oh, where are you? You're at Leviticus, you know, and like, oh my goodness, I'm ready to give up. You continue. Not because it's some religious thing you said, you, but you really want those words living in you. Some of you are engaging in Bible studies with other people, and you're asking the questions of Jesus with friends. Like, what, how did Jesus respond to a situation? How did he approach this person? What were his struggles and his joys? Letting those inform you. So however you do it, there's a lot of ways you could do this. Um, what Jesus is inviting us to is nothing less than the Word of God shaping us in the way we think and breathe and look at ourselves and look at the world around us. So I'll just ask you before we go to the second part of this, where is God's Word in your life today? How is it shaping your life? Uh, are you abiding in God's Word? Like in the way I've just described, is it really interpenetrating your life? Vine and branches, remember the metaphor Jesus uses. Are you allowing his, his word to come into you and, and shape your response and allow you to grow into the person you can be? Because um, if you're not, if you're just getting it here from me, you will never grow. You will not become the full-orbed, mature Christian God desires you to be. You won't. That's not enough. Uh, you, you need to be so connected to Jesus in his word so that you'll grow. So that's your work. But there's also God's work, and this is the fun part. <laughs> and it's painful, too. Verse 2, this is what Jesus says, He cuts off every branch in me, every branch in me. So I've just talked about that. Remain in me, and I remain in you, and you'll bear much fruit. Check this out. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So there are some branches that are connected to the vine that are not bearing fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it'll become more fruitful. The, the first part of this, of him cutting it off, I, we're not going to talk about today. That's kind of mind-blowing to think about, that Jesus actually cuts some of, the thing, some of us off. That's kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. But I do want to look at the second half here, where he says that every branch that is bearing fruit, because I've just said, hey, if you, if you meditate on God's word, you're going to bear fruit. And then God turns around and says, by the way, I'm going to prune you back when you start bearing fruit. And you kind of go, but wasn't that the invitation? Am I not to be fruitful? Like the fruit of God's spirit, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness. Why would God cut that back? <laughs> and so I want to try and address that with you. Um, the, the vine dresser, this is God, the father, the gardener. He's, he's someone who, I think what he's doing by, in this metaphor is he's trying to bring the very best out in a vine. The very best out in a tree. It's, it's, it's full potential. It's full productivity. And he does that. He says that. He does that through attacking it. <laughs> I'm not saying God's attacking you, so to speak, but he, he does that through cutting it back. And I, I didn't quite understand this very well until this week. Uh, I came home, and there's my wife. Just walked in. Uh, 
<laughs> I feel terrible now. I did tell her I was going to say this. So I came home after church last week. She was in the backyard um, up in our big apple tree that I was telling you. We have all these trees in the backyard. And the ladder, on the ladder with her loppers. And, uh, but she was sitting on the ladder. And she had her phone out. And uh, she was like on the phone. <laughs> she was fobbing. No, fubbing. I don't know. What is that? To snub on your phone, to fub. Some of you know what that means. Yeah, fubbing. So she's there. These guys and I talked about it on Monday, and they're like, That's, I thought they knew what that word was because they're all young and hip, but nobody knows what that word is. So she's on the phone, and I'm talking to her, and she's like doing things like this. I said, hey, what's going on? Because that's our 12-year-old daughter's job in our family is to ignore us on the phone. And um, so she's on the phone. I'm intrigued. What's going on? And she's watching YouTube videos on the top of a ladder on how to prune, because we've never pruned anything in our lives. And uh, she, she, she was discovering all these cool things about pruning. So, for example, there are different varieties of fruit trees in our backyard, and um, they need to be pruned differently. You can't, every tree is not the same. And so she's learning that our apple tree, which is older and different than our pear trees, need to be pruned a little bit different to grow the fruit effectively. So she's learning all these cool things. We have this Japanese maple in our backyard, which we dare not touch. <laughs> we need to get an arborist for that because totally different story. And then she learned that the point of pruning is totally counterintuitive. And some of you know this, that, that pruning is actually intended to stimulate productivity and beauty uh, and, and growth and the power and the size of that tree, whether it's a tree or a grapevine or whatever. Uh, and you'd think otherwise if you were there on Sunday just looking at the mess, there was like this pile of branches on the ground that she'd cut off this tree she was in, and all this, these gashes on the tree, like you can see them now, just totally gashed up, right? And you're going, this is not going to turn out well. This is not going to produce good fruit. It's going to be an ugly mess. And to the ignorant eye, you'd say, well, what a waste. Why not just let it grow, right? But the skillful eye of a gardener or an arborist or whatever will, will, will know there wasn't a single random stroke there. That every stroke that Elizabeth or every cut she took against that tree was there to protect it, to, to grow it. That wherever that she found a dead and diseased branch, a sucker or whatever they call those things, cut that off. Cut that off and, and shape it in such a way that it's going to produce more life and develop it and stimulate it. So pruning is not about destroying life or a tree, or a vine, or whatever. Instead, it's about stimulating greater growth. How many of you know that? You probably knew that already and just wasted a few minutes. Okay, good. So the advantage of pruning, when looked at spiritually, can, can really put, be put into one phrase that I heard uh, a, a preacher I know put. He said, there's nothing cut off from your life that is not a gain to lose, and there's nothing kept that would not be, have been a loss to keep. Do you hear that? There's nothing cut off in your life that was not a gain to lose. And there's nothing kept that would have been a loss to keep. God, every, everything in your life God is doing, he intends to do. He's a gardener. He's not skillless. He's not just hacking away at your life randomly. And it's kind of scary when you think about it because it's, it's really running through everything we see in the Bible. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the pure in heart sermon. You give gold ore to a refiner, what does the refiner do? He sticks it into a furnace and he burns it up to get the, 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 the on, only the purest element there. He burns it first. You give an athlete a coach. Paul talks about this in all of his letters, 1 Corinthians 9. What does the coach do? 
One more time around the track. You're not done. <laughs> Run the race like an athlete who, who wants to get the prize. Compete. Uh, you give a child to a parent. This is Hebrews 12. The parent disciplines the child. Uh, and what does the child say? My, life, my social life is over. It's ruined forever, you know? <laughs> You're the worst parent. I hate you. What does God say? No discipline seems pleasant. Hebrews 12, 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So the refiner is given the ore, the coach is the athlete, the parent the child, the vine dresser the branch. And that's the deal. God is telling us, Jesus is telling us that if we're really going to give our lives over to him, surrender our lives to him, and then experience his life, like I said earlier, kind of coursing through us, if, if union with Christ is not just some nice phrase, but a reality for you, then the Father is going to have to prune your life. That's just part of the deal. That's his work. It's always his work. So he's going to cut something back in your life. Uh, he'll remove something. He'll discipline other things. He'll burn some things up. He'll take some things away. And that's going to be painful at the time. It's painful to have things cut off. I'm sure the tree in our backyard, though I don't know if it's nascent, probably felt pain. I, I don't know. Uh, but they, there, there are a lot of missed opportunities in your life that you kind of go, man, if only, what if? I'll never, things may never grow back. I'm never going to be that person I thought I was going to be. It's not easy. Uh, but here's the deal. It's always done, like I said earlier, with skill, at least when God's doing the pruning, as well as with amazing love and care. Here's Hebrews 12 again. So that discipline passage I just read to you, God is treating, treating you as children. And then, God, then Hebrews says this, for what children are not disciplined by their father? We just sang that song, Good, Good, Good Father. Do you believe that? That God is good? And, and we all have human fathers and mothers that have disciplined us, and we respected them for it, maybe at a level. How much more should we submit to our, our good father? <laughs> they disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Listen to this. Are, are you being pruned? Is there something in your life? Is this one of those seasons where things are being cut back for you, cut off, thinned out? You know, relationships with your spouse, your children, your family are, are hard. You don't see a way forward. It's, it's just work. Work is work. It's no longer filled with any joy. There's nothing in it that just is sucking the life out of you. Intimacy with Christ, this stuff I've been talking about, is just you feel dry. There's nothing, there's nothing good in it for you. Uh, your view of money, you're just feeling, filled with anxiety right now. Like there's not going to be enough. Um, your sense of peace about the world we live in doesn't feel like a very peaceful world. What if you began to look at your life not as at what God has done or is doing, not with the ignorant eye of a branch or maybe a, an immature child, but with the awareness of, of adult sons and daughters who say, wow, I don't despise that discipline that I'm going through right now. Um, I know the heart of our Father. It's good. Uh, I have 20-20 I have hindsight a little bit. I know his intention is to share his holiness with me. He wants to share himself with me, is what, what this is saying. His life with me. Um, he wants us to, to know that we're loved as Christ was loved. That's what it means for God to be the master gardener, the vine dresser. That he's at work in our lives, and there's nothing he's done and nothing that he's doing 
nothing that he takes away, nothing that he leaves, that doesn't have a promise and a purpose to it. And the, promise is, the purpose is this, that we'd bear more fruit. There's a purpose behind him leaving things that you'd bear, or taking things away, that you'd bear more fruit. And the promise is this, that that fruit would ultimately become the joy of Christ's presence. Uh, Christ's presence in your life is meant to be joyful. And that's what Jesus says at the end of this passage, that you might be filled with his joy. And if you know anything about fruit and what that metaphor means is that he wants you to be able to share that with others. That's the season we're looking forward to right now, isn't it? When these fruit trees in our yard grow, that there be fruit to share. And so I want to invite you to reflect on a question right now by way of response. I'll invite our our worship team forward. Um, You'll see this in your bulletin. I didn't bring one up. Oh, here we go. Uh, There's two blank, well, there's at the bottom, there's under response, there's two blank lines. It says that God is pruning so that uh, God might grow. I just want you to think about for a minute, is there something that God's pruning in your life? Is it is God pruning cynicism uh, so that he might grow hope? Or is God pruning addiction to something so he might grow intimacy? Uh, is God pruning bitterness so that he could grow forgiveness? Is he pruning fear so you could grow in faith? There's a lot of ways God prunes us. Uh, and he wants to prune those things so that we could continue to grow in his character. And so I want you to, be th- I want you to think for a moment about what he's pruning. And then I... I uh, want to invite those that are feeling brave enough um, <laughs> with these. This is called flagging tape. It took me a long time at Home Depot to find this. It's back by the tools. And so um, I'd love for you to, as you feel led, um, to come up. Uh, and if, you've, if God has put something on your heart that he's pruning or God has put something on your heart that he's growing or desires to grow, just to, to rip off a piece of that tape. And just write that word on there. And then just attach that to these branches. Um, we're going to plant this tree. I, I think we're going to plant it here. We might plant it in our front yard if, if they don't let us plant it here. But I'd love to do that with you guys. It's just a symbol of God growing new life in our community. Um, and so I'd love to have symbols of that as, we're, as we're, uh, this tree grows. Of what God wants to both prune for new life to grow as well as what God wants to grow on this tree. Okay, Let me take a moment to pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we just slow down for a moment here. A lot of words. And uh, we invite your spirit to speak now. Um, We want to lean into this uh, promise that you want to grow us, God, into your likeness and your image. Um, And so, God, as we we do that... uh, We confess that many of us confess, God, that we haven't been connected to you in this past week or in in the weeks even further back. And we desire that, God. We desire to be connected to you, to have your life in us. And so, God, as we come into connection with you now, would uh, would you speak to us? Would you form us in response? Um, And, God, as you reveal to us areas in our lives that you're pruning, that you're taking back, would that not be a discouragement to us? But would we hear the promise in it that uh, you want to grow us, God, 
You want to grow fruit in our lives, joy that can be shared with the world around us. And so, God, as, as you open our hearts to response, we thank you for your work in our lives. And we do this praying in Christ's name. Amen. So, again, just take a moment.